Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I wonder how many people can quote that, but really don't expect that. It's a question, so it's up to you. If you can believe, all things are possible. We all know that with God, nothing is impossible. When he says to you that on the basis of faith in him, nothing will be impossible to, to you either. Look at Matthew 17. Another wonderful verse of scripture along the same lines in verse 20, talking about the grain of mustard seed. He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove and what? Nothing shall be impossible to you. I do not believe we will ever teach on the subject of faith too much. I remember a man accused me of that once, said, that's all you talk about. Well, I hope that's true because it's one thing that is so vital and so necessary in the Bible that without it, without it, you can't please God. Without it, you won't be ready when Jesus comes. Without it, you can't appropriate the promises of God. And without it, you can't have a relationship with God because he that cometh to God must believe that he is not just in existence of some being or in this new age, we miss some energy, but in a literal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must believe that he is. Having never seen him, you believe. Hopefully, like Moses, we endure through all the trials of our life as seeing him who is invisible. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 11. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And we're talking about the faith that God gives his own, the faith that God gives to his people. Again, to repeat myself, everybody in a church, all church members profess to have faith. It's not even an issue with most people. Oh, of course I have faith. I go to church. Well, of course I have faith. I read my Bible. Well, of course I have faith. I, and then they mention some religious activity or some religious idea that they have in their heart, which to them qualifies as having faith in God. They believe in the existence of God. They believe in the stories the Bible tells. They believe in heaven. With their mind, they agree with those statements. But that's what a lot of people call faith, mental agreement. And because you mentally can say, well, I believe the Bible's true. I believe Jesus is real. I believe I, anybody can say that. And if that's all there is to faith, then there's not much really to teach. All we have to do is read some facts and say, do you all agree with those facts? You say, yes, then we're all believers. But there's so many times that people fail and falter and come up short. And their life is futile and is full of sadness and sorrow and difficulty, and they're sometimes bewildered because they can't understand why, if the Bible says all these wonderful promises are appropriated by faith, how is it I have none of them? Or at best, only a few of them. I mean, I do believe in God, but nothing works for me. So there's more to faith than just saying you believe. This is one of the most, if not to me at least, it's just where I am, the most important subjects in the Bible to teach God's people. All of God's people have lots of problems. They have lots of troubles. They encounter difficulties. That's what you get in this life. But remember this. Jesus said in Matthew 17 and verse 20, nothing, nothing is impossible to the person who exercises faith. Nothing. Remember Mark 11, 24? What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe you have received it, and you shall have it. It's that simple. And yet, in its simplicity, it's profound. It just didn't seem to work in very many people. I'm telling you, as I've said, I keep saying it, and I know you're maybe hopefully not weary of hearing it. There are multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of church members, and I'm talking about good people, nice people, not inferior to anybody, certainly not us. 
but they've never really been taught what faith is. They really don't know what it is. And that's really sad because the Bible is full of all these promises that God has given to us, and they don't know how to appropriate any of them. At best, all they can say is, well, if it be the Lord's will, if it be thy will, then let me have it. They say that at their prayer. Well, we should just leave it up to God if it be thy will. No, God leaves it up to you. He says, if thou canst believe. So God has already said what he's going to say. Instead of us saying, well, why doesn't God do something? He has. He has. You're holding his promises in your lap. Again, this is what he watches over. This is what God said he watches over to perform. This is what you can trust him for. But a lot of people don't because the faith they have is not the faith that God describes in the Bible that he gives. When God gives you faith, and that's still another message on the end of this one, when God gives you faith, you'll know it because it really will work. It does bring to pass the things that God has promised. And this is what we all want because faith is not just trying real hard to get something to happen and, and faith is not confessing God could if he wants to, but faith is believing that God did when you asked. You may not look better, you may not sound better, you may not even feel better, but God didn't say you'd look better, sound better, and feel better when you pray. He says when you pray, believe that those things you want are yours. Then begin to live like they're yours, prove that you believe. And Jesus said, and you shall get it. Now, would you turn once more tonight before we get really going to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Because the problem is, and we have to address the problem, if what I said is true, if what I said is true, that a lot of people want to believe, but they're not believing. They go to church and so forth. What's wrong? Why doesn't it work? Why isn't it working? Why do so many people have a hard time with faith? It's a simple subject. It simply means to count on God to do what he said. It's you exercising your will, your choice, to take God at his word and to count on him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 12, this is what we read last time and this is what God says about the problem as I see it. Now we have received, verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. Now let me ask you a question. Can we only know what is ours as the spirit of God reveals it to us? But anybody by natural knowledge can simply mentally agree with God, but he really cannot know. Now we have received, not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is of God, who is of God, that we might know all these things we can't earn and don't deserve, but are freely given to us. And we're talking about several thousand promises that you can't earn, you can't fast long enough, you can't give enough money, you can't go on enough mission fields to get something. It's free. Then verse 13, which things also we speak, and we should, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, because that's all man has, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, we would call that God's anointing. For when God gives his anointing, it always comes with purpose. The purpose of God's anointing, like in a setting like this, is to take that which cannot be known naturally by man's wisdom and impart to you what it means spiritually. Because if God doesn't do this, all we have is natural knowledge. We all have natural knowledge, but there's also such a thing called spiritual knowledge. Now we've been through this a bunch, but let me say it again. I can know a whole lot in this life naturally. With natural intelligence, just growing up normally and naturally, I learn a whole lot. I go to school, I study, some more so than others, but we all learn things. It's natural knowledge. None of it can get you to heaven. You can by no means in that way know God. You can only know about him. 
But there is a knowledge which comes from God, which enables me to go beyond what is natural and understand what is spiritual. Are you with me? Remember Ephesians 1, that God would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So there is a knowledge that God gives, that God would give to me such a knowledge that I can know something that I haven't known before, couldn't have known before. Like when the Holy Spirit comes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When, when the Holy Spirit comes in, one of the things that Jesus said would happen has to do with what you can learn. He said, I have many more things to say unto you. Remember John 16 said, but you can't bear it right now. Isn't that something? Jesus said, I have more to say, but you can't handle it. That's not a put down. Your natural knowledge takes you so far and as far as you can go. You can know a lot about theology. You can know a lot of facts. You can know a lot of things because some people are very intelligent. They exceed the limits and they go into intellectualism. But that is not the way we know God. We know God by invitation. And when God chooses to open your eyes and give you a revelation of him or illumination of him, you find yourself going, oh. And it begins to change the direction of your life if you believe it. Because you wouldn't know how to go this way unless God showed you this way. Because you're limited. You're limited by natural knowledge. But he goes on to say in verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit. Why? Why cannot a natural, ordinary, common adult, young adult, why can't we understand things beyond the natural? Because we don't have the spirit. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit, for they are what? Spiritually discerned. He can't know it. Neither can he know them, he said. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are what? Foolishness. That means they're not sensible. Spiritual things to natural men are hard to believe. Well, I don't know about that. Well, come on, that's off the wall. Where'd you get that? That's their reaction to spiritual things. A man who believes he's healed and acts like he's healed. To a medical man, a doctor, a surgeon, whatever, five degrees. He sees me down here taking God at his word. God says, by the stripes of Jesus, I was healed. Now, I choose to accept that as true. My natural mind can't understand any of this, but it's not required to. All I'm required to do is unhook from what I know and what seems reasonable and natural in this world and take God at his word and let him do it. I can't make it work. And who is it that thinks I'm foolish? The people that go that way. The doctor would look at me and say, well, you're crazy, son. If you don't do something about this condition that you have in your body, it could develop into this and it become chronic and then you're going to die or be impaired the rest of your life. That's natural knowledge. That's learned naturally. It's learned in books. It's learned in tests. And it's just common. It's just the way it is in life. It's always been that way. It'll probably always be that way. If you do this, you're going to get this. If you don't do something with this, it'll become this. And if you don't deal with it there, then it winds up like this. And nobody escapes that. That's natural knowledge. That's the way a natural man lives. Society expects a natural man to live like that. We're all alike. We're all vulnerable. We're all in this body of clay, and it's going to get sick, and you should have insurance because when you die, you'll die in a hospital. That's natural knowledge. Everybody's comfortable with that, but they can do nothing about the consequences of it. For the highest educated men in the world often say with their best machines and best designs and all their laboratory findings, the best they can say is, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do. And that's just natural knowledge. He's come to the end of his rope. And you have no hope. A lot of people have heard that there is something beyond medical world. There is something beyond pills and drugs and operations. I'm not against that because there are people who need that. If they don't get that, they'll die. I'm just saying that God has given to you something that exceeds the natural. Because you see, a natural man, the Bible calls him a sukikos. 
Isn't that nice? A long word which has to do with a man who is ruled by his senses. He is a sense-ruled man. We would call him a soulish man, a soul man. And a soulish man means that what he believes and what determines choices he's going to make are his senses. Taste, feel, smell, and hear. And if there's another one, then that one too. If I got them all. This is what he believes, just like Thomas said in John chapter 20. Unless I see the prince in his hands and the holes in his feet, I will not believe. He's made like this. This isn't a natural man. You grew up in the world like this. Everybody's like this. We're all like that. The only hope we ever have of getting on God's side is a revelation from God that he's better. And when you cross over, it's an act of faith because you don't know how it's going to work. You can't understand anything you're into now. You're at the total mercy of God. But you're comfortable with that. You look like a fool to the world. Your parents are worried about you because of that church you go to. They didn't mind when you were doing drugs, sleeping with somebody and, and needing pills all the time. But then you go to a church where you're trusting God to get healed. Now you're in some kind of cult and want you to have your brain shrunk to get out of it. Because that's natural knowledge. Nobody should depart from the knowledge of this world, from the medical research and the findings and the efforts in this world. Nobody does that. If you go out beyond that, you've exceeded the limits. Remember last week I brought up a few little things that the natural man has, pro like creation. I mean, heady men, men have studied and researched for years, men smarter than most of us put together. They think it's foolish to think that God in six days can make the world, the universe, all that's in the world, the very intricate workings of it all, that this didn't just happen. This has been an evolving process. Man started with a gas and became a molecule of this mixed with a certain kind of temperature, and that thing had a misfire, and it became a cell. Oh, did it again, and it doubled up, and next thing you know, we got a man. He says, wow, look at me. Ain't I something? But we... Foolish people ask the question, if the God of the Bible is who he said he is and is omnipotent, omnipotent, if he can all power, omni, all potent power, if he is all powerful and nothing is too hard for him, could he make all the existing universe in a day? See, so we have left the wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world, and we've crossed over into something that we can't explain and really don't have to. God did it. How do you know he did it? Because I'm simple-minded, and I believe God. Well, that's crazy. Well, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. God made a man out of the dust of the earth. It's just a Clay figures, all it was. There was nothing to it. But when he went, when the Spirit of God was breathed into dust, man still hadn't figured out how this thing works yet. All the intricacies of his brain, network, vessels and arteries in his body, his system is the way it works, his endocrine system and all the hormones and all the functions of the body and the dynamics of all of this, they still can't figure it all out. And God made it by going, the spirit of God, the almighty God, the spirit that created the worlds that hovered over the void, breathed into a piece of dust that God made and it became the most intricate thing ever created. A human being made in the image of God. It wasn't a caveman walking around like a Sasquatch. Was it? When God made man, he said he made him in the image and the likeness of God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So Adam looked like Jesus. Well, what about all these Booger men, they find in these hills hidden in these rocks and stuff and these toes and teeth and eyeballs, you know. What about all that stuff that they're finding in these rocks? 
I think in the humor of God, he put that there so people could have something to study. You know, I don't mind personally. I don't mind being simple as long as I believe what he said. Because that is an exclusive few, it seems, in this world that can unhook from their natural knowledge, from their sense-ruled life, and just go over to the unexplainable, past finding out God and accepting that what he said is true and I don't have to try to explain it because I can't. I'm free now. How's he going to heal my body if it gets to a certain degree, a certain state? What's the problem with God? Could he heal lepers? Well, what if you die? Has he raised the dead? What's too hard for God? And yet we cling to all of our arguments against God. Why is it that in Christian bookstores, there's all these books trying to explain away miracles? Trying to say that healing is not for sure, that God might not want to heal everybody. Well, I wonder why then he didn't walk through the streets of wherever he walked and say, be sick. If divine healing is right, if God doesn't want to heal everybody, then he believes in divine sickness. And he should have said to some, be sick. What if they'd come in healing line? He said, no, you stay sick. On more than one occasion when multitudes, several thousand people came in, he healed them all. He healed them all. The natural man in the seminary will admit that he did that. Because his Bible said that he couldn't stay in that seminary. If, if he, well, most of them, if he didn't say what the Bible said. But he tells his students, even though God has done that, he can't let go of his natural mind, of his sense rule mind, because he's trying to figure out how he did that, and there's no explanation for it. But because he doesn't keep doing that, there's too many sick people in the church, and therefore there's got to be a reason why they're not well. So the reason is that God doesn't always want to, and so they change their theology to fit their experience, and they teach that as doctrine. And the people are sitting in a dead zone. They can't get away from it. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, when you get through with your doctrine on the people you proselyte, they are twice as much a child of hell as you are. You can't just say what God says and let that be. Oh, no. Turn to Romans 8. No, we can't do that. Why, Jonah and the fish? How could there be such a thing as a fish swallowing that? And here comes a laboratory. Here they come. Now, the largest mammal on this earth is a whale. And the throat opening on a whale and you can't get a man through there. It's like everything has to be naturally explained. God cannot do a miracle unless man can explain it. And man doesn't like to be left without a natural explanation because he's at the mercy of God now. Well, it's so because God said it. Well, you're the laughing stock of the town. I thought you were smart. Actually, I am. If I let go of this world and begin to agree with God, that's pretty good. You're the head, not the tail, above and not beneath. Bless out, bless in. You got none of that in the natural man. In fact, the natural man is going to have a hard time getting to heaven. Well, let me read it for you. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Now, the word flesh can refer to the meat on your body. Or in a spiritual sense, it can refer to your nature. Your fleshly, unsaved, natural man nature. You're just a natural man. Now, that's what he's talking about here. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded. Now, the word carnally is the same as the word flesh in the verse before it. He could say for to be fleshly minded. But we're not talking about meat here. We're talking about a spiritual thing. For to be carnally minded is what? Enmity against God. Does your Bible say that? Let me read it again. For to be carnally minded, to have a mind that is after the senses, is to be an enemy of God. To approach God with this halting approach, 
your mouth's saying all the right things, but your mind is saying, yeah, but uh, if this gets too far, I'm out of here. For to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's like the natural man. He cannot discern spiritual things. He cannot. He cannot. 1 Corinthians 2.12. He cannot. He cannot. And he said here to be carnally minded, he said is enmity against God because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God because it can't be. As long as you hold back because, well, I don't know about that. Well, I know he said that, but I'm not sure he'll do that. You're carnally minded or you're fleshly minded. You're trying to figure out how God is going to do it. You're trying to find rest and peace in some kind of a explainable solution, and there is no such thing. For the walk of faith, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Like Jesus said, you must believe before you see any evidence of an answer. You've got to believe you have something you can't see. Well, like Moses, you endured all these years trusted in God whom you can't see, the invisible God. People think you're crazy. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Boy, you're taking a chance. Better knock on wood because that's all they know. And the church is full of people like this, just full of it. Let me go on. Verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh can please God, but not very much. Now, come on, you're all too tight. Give me a little room here now. I've been accused of being a little too narrow. Okay, so I'm going to take this verse and give you all a little room because, now listen, this is the natural-minded preacher who knows that by saying what God said, it's going to offend natural minds in the church. So he wants to modify that, water that, some way change it around so the natural mind won't be offended by it. Now listen to this, verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh will have a harder time pleasing God than those that aren't. That don't mean anything. He said, they that are in the flesh cannot what? Okay, so here's the deal. A natural man with a natural mind, the word for flesh is S-A-R-X, but it has to do with carnality. It's an element of the expression of your mind because the soul is considered the mind. As a man thinketh in his soul, the Hebrew says, so is he. So we think with our mind. We think with our soul. We form opinions with our mind. We make decisions based on how we calculate and understand things with our mind. We change the course of our action. If our mind has a conscience after God, everything sort of goes around the mind here. The only part of me the devil can use to control my life is my mind. My body just expresses whatever signal is sent by my mind. My reborn spirit does not just judicially control me. I have to yield to it. I have to yield. I have to be willing to yield to this new voice on the inside of me. And in this way, my mind is being renewed. Because if you don't renew your mind, you know what happens. You never know the will of God. You remain that carnal man, never sure, never certain, afraid, fearful, I don't know about that kind of stuff. And you're in church and you feel good about there. You're in a church where they preach a word. I feel good about that. But on the inside, there's this uneasiness that, boy, I, I just wish I could know. Well, see, that's not faith. You're on the right road and maybe the right place. But faith doesn't say that. Faith doesn't draw up in a little fetal position and say, I don't know about that. Faith doesn't do that. When you have faith in God, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, the conditions are, what your body's telling you, what the economy tells you, what the world views tell you, or the views papers tell you. All you need to know now is what God said. Your peace is not in what you see, but your peace is in what you believe. That hadn't even happened yet. And the world thinks, well, you're crazy. I wouldn't give up. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the way they go. See in verse 5, your flesh. Verse 6, carnality. Verse 7, carnal. They're all the same word. We're not talking about meat on your body in those words, obviously, because if that was true, then anybody that's living is dead. I mean, he's not going to heaven. 
you know, verse 8, if you're in the flesh, if that just means your physical body, those who are carnal, living in the natural, ruled by their senses, what they see, what they taste, touch, smell, hear. This is the thing that determines my choice. And if that's what determines my choice and not what God said, then it's not faith. And you can't please God. You can try all you want. You can go to church and do all the things that the natural man says, well, surely God would be pleased if I did this and this because I would be pleased if you did this or this. Well, surely God would be pleased if we built this and went there and, and made one of these because that's what we would be pleased with. And, you know, we're trying to make God like us, a natural man does. So he wants to bring God down to his level and do these kind of things at the expense of listening to and following this word. He thinks that it's not so necessary that I be so word-oriented as long as I'm out here doing things. That's why they only go to church occasionally. They don't need it. It's the sense-ruled mind. You're your own little God. You figured it out for yourself. That's why you have no peace. You have no joy. You worry all the time. You fret all the time. You're full of medicine and everything else because you don't know how to get away from it. And for those who step out here and, and take God at his word and... Sometimes they go through this, and, <laughs> and sensible people say, what's wrong with him? Where does he go to church? That's a lie. Anybody says they're healed and dragging a leg behind them like, that's a lie. I think it would be a lie if you say you're saved and you don't want to trust the Lord. So we ended last time. I said this question right before we left. I didn't know it would take that long to review. I love reviewing. I do. But I asked you the last time, I said, well, what then would a soulish, natural man, natural rule evangelist do? If he goes into the world and the dark places of the world or wherever he goes, especially the poor countries of the world, a lot of people focus their attention on the neediest places in the world for evangelism. What does he preach? If he truly is a natural man, what does he preach? Years ago, I was in a church, and I spoke about the abundant life. I spoke about it because the Bible addresses that subject. Jesus himself said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It not only includes peace and joy and happiness and success in life, it also includes financial things where you don't have to be poor and broke and just always begging or needing. It's a bigger picture. Well, I was preaching like that. He was getting ready to go to a foreign country, this preacher was. So after church was over, we went out somewhere to eat dinner, lunch. And I could tell that he was not the person he was the day before in his conversation, that he was thinking about something. So he said, you know, you said something today that I don't know about this. And I said, okay, what did I say? And uh, you don't know what's going to come at you when you do this. Just if it's Sunday, you know you get to go home shortly. But he said, well, you're talking about preaching abundant life or prosperity. Well, you couldn't go to such and such a country and preach that. Now, here's a natural mind. I would say, why couldn't you? I was in India in the mid-'80s. I went to that country, India. I guess people were as poor as, as I don't know why they keep saying church mice. But, I mean, we went to this country to speak, and it was, it was a crowd, oh, twice his size, actually in a little Hindu temple. They covered all the monkeys up on the wall and stuff so we wouldn't have to see them. And I taught. I was with two businessmen and a, another preacher who was great, big church up in Ohio, big church. So I was a little Bible study teacher, and I was in there with a bunch of big shots. And I was teaching on prosperity. And then back at the hotel, like this preacher was telling you about. How do you figure, uh, Hamilton, how do you come to the fact that we're over here in one of the poorest nations in the world? We're talking about prosperity and abundance. I don't mind being challenged. I really don't. And I said, well, what does the Bible say? See, the natural man said, don't go there. But I said, what a spiritual mind would say, well, what does the scripture say? Is Malachi 3 in the Bible where he said, I will open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing out upon you? What's the basis for him doing that? Giving. I said, all these preachers that go to all these poor countries, they never talk about that. They never talk about the power in giving. 
People think, well, you're just trying to get something. No. No. I tell people, if you think I'm trying to get something, leave that bucket alone tonight. I'm just saying that the Bible says, like Jesus says, more blessed to give than to receive. All we do is take things to them. We never let them give anything back. We never teach them to give. Therefore, they're under a curse. You can't minister very long to a curse. And if you're a natural man, you can't bring forth faith out of your unbelief. You can't preach a natural gospel and expect faith to come from it. I told them, I said, the ones that had to walk and had bicycles, I said, God will bless you as much in India as he does in America. You don't have to be where there are banks and jobs in order to prosper. The proof of it was when God brought Israel out of Egypt. What did the Israelites own? They owned nothing. They were brick makers. They were poor people. They were slaves. They had no rights of their own. It didn't matter what they think or felt. They just did what they were told. And when it came time to go and they left Egypt, they left with so much gold and silver and scarlet. And I've just been reading about this in the morning in my morning read. They left with so much stuff that they were able to build a pretty lavish temple. Well, lavish in the sense that it was a lot of gold and silver. Where did a bunch of slaves get gold and silver? They asked for it. They said, Father, name. No, they went to their Egyptian lords and said, I'd like to have your rings and your earrings and your nose rings. I'd like to have your silverware in there. I'd like to have those clothes you got in that closet back there. Put them in my U-Haul for me. They went and asked for it. And the wealth of the sinner, the Bible said, is laid up for the just. And you have not because you ask not. Or you're trying to get things from God with a tight spirit and it doesn't work. Never will work. Never will work. You can buy all the tapes and books on abundance and prosperity you want, but if you don't give, it will not work. It didn't say how much. That's between you and God. But giving is a major deal. But if you don't preach that and you go in there with a natural mind, you can say, well, I can't preach the abundant life here. I can't teach healing because these people have been sick their whole life. There's no hospitals and medicine over here, so I can't preach healing. What do you preach? Well, I preach salvation. Well, what does salvation mean? What does the word salvation mean? What's the Bible definition for salvation? It's a simple word, sozo. It can mean healing of your body. It could mean the forgiveness of your sins too. Mental well-being. It covers the whole gamut of your life. Psalm 103, God didn't just say part of you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgiveth all thine what? Iniquities and the same sins. He healeth what? All thy diseases. Then he crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things. Preach that. Oh, I couldn't preach it over there. They don't have any food. Preach it. Preach it and let God make food. Let them see a miracle. Oh, that won't work. It won't. I've read of a man who set the table in a boy's home. They had no food. They set the table. No food. And they sat down and prayed. And all the boys said, what are we going to eat? He said, God will provide. Let's just thank God for it. And they prayed. And then the wagon pulled up out front with all this food on it. And they brought it in and fed the kids. What about that? What about a man the Lord told to go to Israel? Had no money, but he said, I want you to go. Packed his bag, everything with no money. And went to the airport with his bag. Set it down in the airport and waited. Plane's going to leave soon. Here the guy came. Are you so-and-so? Yes. Hand him the exact amount of money he needed to go over here and get his ticket. A natural man goes, that's oh, just a stretch. In it. Could God do that? Is it possible that God could do that, thou natural thing? Could he? What's too hard for God? 
Would he test a man like that or a woman to go and wait on the Lord? Now, somebody else said, well, I tried that, and I, I was there for a week, like starved to death. <laughs> well, he told you his testimony. He didn't tell you to go to the airport and go to Israel. He might not have wanted you there, but he wanted him there, and he was going to test him because he's going to use him. He wanted to prove him. What about the mouth of good things, that part? Could you preach that in a country where there was hardly any food? What if you went to the Sudan or down in Haiti? Well, they probably got as much food as anybody now, all them plain loads of goods going in. But go to some African like the Sudan. Could you preach abundant life there? Probably nobody has. You think about it. Centuries, probably nobody ever did. And those folks in their mind don't know they can do better. Just like those Indians over there when I was preaching, they have a caste system, and the lowest caste can never be anything but the lowest caste. They have no reason to have faith for anything better because they've been told they can't. Their natural mind ruled them, kept them down, and destroyed them because the devil comes to kill and steal and destroy. And I told them when I was there, I said, God will bless you in this country. You don't need to be in America to be blessed. He'll bless you here. And the guys I was with kind of went, because you see the natural mind said, how can this be? We can preach that in Shelbyville because we got garages to put cars in and pots to put chickens in and lots of cars and lots of garages and lots of chickens. But these people over there, they don't have anything. In a sense, good. Because now God can pick one of them out of there and bless him with something that nobody else had and the others will go, where'd that come from? He said, I was out there hoeing my garden, and this truck pulled up and had a tiller on it. And he backed it off and said, are you Abdul or somebody or another? And he said, yeah. And so they gave him a can of gas. He fired his tiller up, and somebody said, how'd you get that? Well, I asked God for it. Well, I asked God for stuff too, but how'd you get it? I asked him for it, and he brought it to pass. I know what they said the first time I testified that I had a new car. <laughs> Tommy thinks he's going to get a car. <laughs> Where'd it come from? I told him, I said, I don't know how this works. I don't have any natural explanation, and I refuse to look for one. Because I believe I'm praying right here, and some businessman in the Sudan can send something over here to me and bless me with whatever I need. The night that I prayed for a new home, paid for, paid for. I didn't have a salary. I didn't have an income. I had no church. I was an itinerant traveling preacher. I lived on what I got wherever I went. I had to go because I had no sick pay. I had a word that I could be well, so I didn't miss meetings. Traveled thousands and thousands of miles, claimed a house, one day got it, it was paid for, and there are folks who said, wow, will that work in Haiti? Well, let me ask you this, because this is where the natural might, could it? Could God on one day just go, okay, in Haiti, I'm going to do something special, or could God do it for everybody that would believe him? He said, what things soever you desire when you pray, what? Can you believe in Haiti? Can you believe in the Sudan? Can you believe in India? So what's the problem? The problem is the mind, the natural mind. The natural mind worries. The natural mind worries because it doesn't know how something is going to turn out. And the natural mind says, if something doesn't happen soon, this is what's going to happen, and then you're going to be, and this is the end of your role. And so you start thinking that way, and then fear comes in. You know, the first cousin of worry is fear. And fear begins to come in and say, oh, boy, oh, boy, you're in, you're in trouble now. So you start taking thought. The very thing Jesus said not to do, men do. Jesus said, take no thought, didn't he? Is that only in America or can that work in the Sudan or in India or in Haiti? Does take no thought apply to all Christians or just some of them? So I don't have to worry about clothing, 
shelter, food, or well-being. He even said, take no thought for your life, didn't he? I don't need any insurance. God knows my heart. I shred every one of them I get. I've been doing it for, well, I didn't have a shredder for 20 years, but I've been throwing them away every time I get them. I don't want to even think that there is a chance and I'm going to lean over here to the natural mind because I'm afraid. No, I wouldn't say stuff like that because you know what's going to happen. See, that's the natural mind. That's the fear that keeps you from doing it. It's just fear. We're so used to the TV set, it'll choke you down with drugs. Let me get off subject for one second. Now, I heard the other day that a lot of kids go to school and they bring pills that their parents have gotten for prescriptions and they take these pills. I think, what is wrong with everybody? Have you ever heard the side effects of some of these drugs? You know, that butterfly that comes in a room so you can sleep? You know what can happen to you with that thing? You might not wake up. What a butterfly. It can literally harm your body. People are all enamored with these sex pills today. And some of them plainly tell you, don't take this more than twice a week or something like that. They won't tell you what's going to happen to these men in just a few years. Because you wouldn't buy that nasty stuff if you did. And they can't believe God because they're not Christian. Most of them aren't. Because they only believe things will work. If you go this way, that's not true. God never said that. This is all I need. This is it. I don't want to know what the symptoms of anything are. You got a mute button, you can turn it off. I don't want to know one out of five gets what and what happens to one out of six. I don't want to know. I don't even want that in my mind as something in my hard drive that the devil can recall for thinking. What I want my mind to be filled with is just right here. I want to be spiritually minded because the Bible says this is life. But a man who is afraid to trust God, I don't know if he's going to preach. I don't know. Could you go in the Middle East and preach on protection? Oh, the Muslims are going to get you. Well, actually, you know, the 91st Psalm says that the getting is the other way around. It says that no evil shall befall me. No plague will come nigh my dwelling. And concerning me, he will give his angels charge. And they will keep me in all my ways. Oh, yeah, well, I said, yeah, but here they come. Here they come. They got guns. They're going to cut your head off. Let me see. <clears throat> no evil shall befall thee. No plague come nigh thy dwelling. And concerning you, he will give his angels charge. And they shall keep you in all your ways. Yeah, well, that's good. You know all that. But, you know, but here they come. You see, there shall no evil befall you. And no plague come nigh your dwelling. He'll give his angels charge over you. And they'll keep you in all. Is that still in there? Now, one of these two are true. Either they're going to come get you and cut your head off, or God's going to keep your head on your shoulders and use you, and he's going to take care of you. And what's going to happen? Depends on what you believe, doesn't it? But if you can't believe what God said, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you can't believe what God said, how can you please God? Because nobody has ever worried and fretted and pleased God. When he said, take no thought, he means quit thinking the way you learn to think. Your mind has to be renewed. Was it Isaiah 55, about the way we think? Allow me. He said, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is what God said. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Is it possible then that a man can actually think like God? Could he? Let me see if anything in the Bible about that and see. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And if he said with your mind, because this is where you take thought, if he said take no thought, then that's a choice that I make, isn't it? Worry's a choice. Fear's a choice. Faith is a choice. God offers the right choice. The natural mind fights that, but you have to fight the good fight of faith and make the right choices. Again, I don't have to figure out how God's going to do it. 
I don't have to try and figure out how God will sustain me in the rest of my life. Because, you know, you know, when you get old, you have this and this, you break down. No, no, no. That's not what the book said. He said, I'll be full of sap. It's in there. He said, he will keep us and sustain us all the days of our life. Didn't he say in the 91st Psalm down towards the end of it that with long life, didn't he say something like that? Didn't he say like in the 90, some, surely somebody knows where he said that, that in the 91st Psalm at the end of it, he said, and with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Will he? Then why would you want a life insurance package? I'm asking you as a Christian, if he said with long life, will I satisfy him? Then why would I want to act like it won't work and get something else just in case? How can I please God reading what he says and then acting like it won't work? I thought this might fire you up a little bit. I thought you might be happy about all this. Can I preach healing in a country where there's little doctors and medicine? What if somebody said, well, there's no medicine and no hospitals there. What if I said, good. What do medical missionaries do? Do they, they go and they preach Jesus? And then they come and heal all their people with all their drugs. Is that a problem? What does Jesus say about healing? Does he have anything to do about that? Then why don't we just go down and lay hands on them and teach them about healing? Why don't we take a week and explain to these people how healing works because God said it and you distrust it. Why don't we do that? Well, because it might not work. The natural man said, well, it might not work. And if it didn't work, here comes the natural. Here comes the reasonable, sensible knowledge of natural educated men. Well, you know, if you prayed for them and they don't get well, they feel bad, they might give up on their faith and quit and give up. Huh. Well, on the other hand, you could preach faith to those people. Make it simple. Don't complicate. Just keep it simple. Preach faith to those people. Just show them with their heavenly father with his hands out. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll set you free. Everything you need, I can do it for you. Quit pointing them to the world's ways and the things of this world. Point them to Jesus. Quit trying to explain how he's going to do it. You don't have to. You don't have to explain. You don't have to explain how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it, or where it's going to come from. Just tell him that he will. God will. And when you pray, believe that he did. And if you believe he did when you prayed, then it'll come to pass. Jesus said so. That's what Jesus said. No, sir, there's so many people that are afraid. So many of us worry, us editorially in the church. There's this uncertainty, this being unsettled because we hear the word maybe every week, but we listen to so much other stuff and it makes us fearful. Gasoline is going up to $800 a gallon. Well, let's make it exciting. Bicycles are going up. Rubber, which has oil in it, that's going up. Antifreeze is going up. Change your oil is going to cost you 350 bucks for one oil change. People sitting home sobbing and crying. We're going to church, and we're saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Pull up to the pump. That's three dollars and what, thirty-eight cents in Shelbyville last year. It was only two and a quarter. Well, that's over a dollar more a gallon. Put the hose in the tank. Sing "Amazing Grace" while you're holding that thing down. Amazing Grace, I've got the victory. And then put the thing up. Pay the man and go. I'm looking at some sad faces in here tonight. <laughs> I'm looking at some people who say, well, I don't know about that. The reason you don't know about that is because you've been bogged down in what the world's telling you. And a Christian to boot. And therefore, you're concerned so much about all the things in this world, not realizing that my God shall supply. I'm going to slam dunk here. I'm going <laughs> to... All your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Because he can. He can. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. Here we go. We're going to grill a dunk this one. 
That's who we serve. That's who saved us and brought us together. That's who wants to unhook us from this mind that's just so concerned about the way to get rid of all of that and say, I'm going to trust the Lord. How's he going to do it? I have no idea. Not even a clue. But as I said many, many years ago, I do believe he could resurrect out of those rocks a prehistoric varmint. Put wings on it. And cause that ugly thing to fly to my house and drop a bag of old gold on my front porch. And gold is about $1,400 an ounce now. It wouldn't take much. Just enough I could hear it rattle on the porch and you get some new building and all kinds of stuff. So if, if in my simple mind, I believe that God could do that if he wanted to, it doesn't matter how he's going to do it, he just will. So therefore, I raise my hand and I say, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Don't you ever get scared? Of course there are fearful moments. But you know what he says about fearful moments to a spiritual mind? Psalm 56, 3, what time I am afraid, I will trust you. I'm not going to give up because <laughs> if you've ever done a 360 on a snowy road, you had a moment of fear. Years ago, David and I were going to Chicago in the middle of the night, going up right downtown Chicago. I mean, where the big dogs run. And we did one of these. I'm hauling the blood of Jesus, hold my neck tight so it won't snap. We stopped in the road, turned around, kept going. It's just like you look back on those moments. You know, God took care of you, didn't he? You were driving too fast for one thing, and my son said so. Dad, you need to slow down. <laughs> You're right, so slow down. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift that God gives. You can't earn it, but God sees the heart. He knows your hunger. He'll give it to you. It's Ephesians 2.8, it is a gift of God. And the purpose of this gift, and we'll close with this, is Philippians one. Verse 29, would you turn to that? Philippians 1 and verse 29. This is the purpose of that faith. All right, listen to me. For unto you, that's us, it has been granted, why? On the behalf of Christ. For whose benefit then? His. It's going to work for him. It's going to work for you, but it's going to glorify him. He says, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. Has it been given to you to believe? Will you be persecuted for it? Then you'll suffer, as he, as he says. You'll suffer for him also. A natural man will get out of all the suffering he can. He'll do everything he can to be like everybody else in this world and, and not call attention to his faith. Never. But a man's going to walk with the Lord and be ready when Jesus comes. He's made a decision to step away from what is normal, what is reasonable in this world, what is quite predictable. And he turns to God whom he's never seen, he's never heard. And just a book about God is all he's got. And he chooses to give up all the natural things in the natural ways for the sake of the ink on these pages being tattooed on his heart and live like this is true. Somebody said, well, what will you do in the end if this isn't true? What are you going to do if it's not true? What if you had this a little bit too much? It wasn't like this at all. And I would say, my wife and I could say, man, I've had a good time. Living in the wrong way, I've had a good time. I've been blessed living wrong and been well for 40 years because I'm doing wrong. Have peace and joy because I'm wrong. Y'all get it yet? <laughs> Bigger question is, what are you going to do if it's right? What if we really can't please God with a natural mind? What if we really are functioning in a Christian atmosphere, but being enemies of God, enmity with God, because we're not convinced that he'll do what he said? If that was true here, should we not preach on this all the time so that everybody will be convinced? Father, in the name of Jesus... 
I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth you said that would make us free, that we might all in that sense and in that way be free. Now, you know the hearts of everybody here. Nobody can hide from you, nobody. And I ask you to deal with all of us until we all have peace before you, all of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.